So y'all, we are uh, we're in Romans chapter 9. We've been walking through the Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And last week we started a new series in that called Blueprint. We started in chapter, uh, beginning, of <clears throat> beginning of chapter 9. The first, really about the first 13 verses. And we ended the day last week talking about God's purpose in election. His purpose of election. And in that chapter those first 13 verses, Paul goes through, if you remember, I want to give you a little recap. Paul goes through the Lord choosing Abraham, not Abraham's brother Nahor, he chose Abraham. And then he chose Isaac. He didn't choose his brother Ishmael, he chose Isaac. And then in the latter part of that passage, uh, in verse 12 or 13, he chose Jacob and not Esau. If you remember, there were some harsh words there at the end. It said, Jacob I loved and Esau I I what? Hated. Now, you remember I explained to you, though, that that was not hate, detest, loathe. It was not Jacob I have loved and chosen for salvation, and Esau uh, I have hated and detested and loathed and condemned him to hell. No, 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 no. That's not what election in that context meant. It was Jacob I preferred. It's Jacob in his line I preferred over Esau. And, And if you remember, I said all of that, the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on down, was to begin to display God's purpose of election. Anybody remember what God's purpose of election was? Jesus. Jesus. God's purpose of election there is to get his son to the stage of history and get folks saved. Now, with that said, we cannot, this is the first little bullet point, we cannot deny election. Everybody got to worship God If you don't, I want you to raise your hand. And you know what? I forgot to do something. I'm going to do it real quick. If this is your first time here, I want you to raise your hand as well, and we want to get a little uh, first-time packet into your hands. So let me jump back into the message. I'm sorry. Um, We can't deny election. We can't. There may be interpretive issues. We may, and there's multiple sort of ways to look at it. Um, And we may have interpretive issues, but we cannot deny God's sovereign election. And we're going to keep digging into that bit by bit over the next few weeks. Now, with that, that little recap of the first 13 verses as this backdrop to today, I want us to jump into verse 14. And verse 14 begins with Paul asking a question. And the question, he says, what shall we say then? And when he says, what shall we say then, it is in the context of, he had just said, Jacob I loved, kind of quoted the Lord, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He had just talked about choosing Abraham, choosing Isaac, choosing Jacob. And then he, Paul says, what shall we say then? If he did all that, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unjust? That's the question that's asked there. And that is a legit question. That is a question that I'm, I'm going to say you're telling a story if you've never had that question pop up into your mind before. If God elects, if God chooses, if God calls, or maybe God pours out his love on some folks in a way that he doesn't pour out his love on other folks, Paul asked the question, does that make him unjust? And Paul immediately answers that question, by no means. 
Some translations say God forbid. Some translations say it could never be. Anybody remember what the Ed translation of by no means is? Are you crazy? No. God is not unjust. God is not unrighteous. It is outside of his very nature. God will not act and be contrary to his nature. God is immutable. That means he's unchanging. Okay? So he cannot be just and unjust. And we know that he is just. And then he goes on in verse 15, Paul does. Now, before I give you those next several verses, I want to give you the, the second bullet. Now, let me tell you this. Today, it seems like I say this all the time, but we are in a difficult part of Scripture, particularly Romans chapter 9. It's difficult. It's difficult. There's light at the end of the tunnel, a huge light at the end of the tunnel, but it's, it's going to be difficult getting there. I told somebody a little while ago, I said every week I try to figure out a way to avoid the difficult parts of this book, and then every week the Lord says, you don't get to cherry pick what you preach about, right? You can't just avoid the difficult stuff. So, second point is this. Let's fill in the blank. None of us deserve God's mercy. None of us. None of us on YouTube, none of us on Facebook, none of us here. Nobody outside these walls, none of us deserve mercy. Look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, who says to Moses? God. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. It doesn't depend on my, my exertion. It doesn't depend on me doing anything, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, now Paul's quoting of the Old Testament, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. Everybody know who Pharaoh is. Pharaoh was the ruler in Egypt when Israel was in slavery. For this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So verse, four, uh, verse 15, Paul's quote in Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 32, 33 is where this whole narrative um, about Israel being or the Jews being enslaved. Genesis, Exodus. Exodus, the second book uh, of the Bible. Write down Exodus 32 and 33. And so Paul quotes it where, where God says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So let me give you a little context. In Exodus 32, Israel had just come out of slavery, 400 years of slavery. They're out in the desert. Scholars would tell you there was probably two to three million of them, bunches of them, bunches. And so they come out, and Moses is up on a mountain, Mount Sinai, and all of Israel, all the rest of them, are down at the foot of the mountain. Who knows what they were doing down there? They're making idols. He says worshiping idols. That's what they were doing. They built a golden calf. They'd all thrown their jewelry, their gold, their whatever in a bucket. They, they melted it down. They made a golden calf. They made an idol. They're worshiping it. Moses hadn't hardly been gone 10 minutes up the mountain and the people are worshiping a statue. They're bowing down before the statue. They're sacrificing to the statue. And the Lord says in verse 7 of, cha of chapter 32 of Exodus, the Lord said that they, the, the, the people, Israel, that they had corrupted themselves. 
They had all totally rebelled against God, all of them except for Moses. They were all acting like fools. Let me tell you about a fool. A fool is one who says in his heart there is no God. So if you say there is no God, then you are a fool. The scripture would call you a fool. They're worshiping a statue. As if the statue is God, they were fools. And y'all, God had just led them out of slavery. Their mama, their daddy, their grandparents, their great-grand, they all had been in slavery for 400 years through, through the plagues and the miracles. He led them out and Moses wasn't gone 10 minutes and they built a statue and they're sacrificing to it. And then God says in verse 10 of chapter 32 of Exodus, he's talking to Moses now. He says, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. I don't want the Lord saying about me, I will consume you. And that's what he said about those few million people that are down there. So, strong. I mean, those are super strong words. And what he's saying to Moses is, get out of my way. I'm fixing to kill them all. The wages of sin is death. They're toast. That's what he said to Moses. And then Moses intercedes on behalf of his people. You know, there's a couple million of his people down there. So he intercedes on behalf of them. And the Bible says in verse 14 of Exodus 32, it says the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The Lord relented of that. Moses even said, blot me out of your book if necessary. If it'll save them, if it'll save my people, take me. Y'all remember that last week? It's almost exactly what Paul said about his people, the Jews. Paul said, if it'll get them saved, send me to hell right now. Moses kind of said the same thing to the Lord. And of course, there's, there's two or three million people down there. But if you've never read this part of Exodus 32 and 3, 3,000 of them were smited. I don't know if that's the past tense. Of, maybe it's smitten. No, smitten means something. They were killed. 3,000 of them were killed. Well, 3,000, it begs the question. Tell the truth, y'all, it begs the question. Is it unjust of God for those 3,000 people to die? Was it unjust? I'm going to tell you, Scripture would say absolutely not. All 2 or 3 million deserve to die, right? If the payment for sin, if the wages for sin is death, then every single one of them had earned the payment. They'd warranted the payment. And it is only, hear this, and you'll hear this in different ways throughout this morning. It is only the sheer mercy of God that all of them didn't die. It is not unjust of God to strike down some. This is what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 9. Okay? There are some whom God calls. And there are some who God doesn't call in that way. Some he calls and some he doesn't. And as soon as you and I hear those kinds of words, we throw out a flag and we start screaming, that ain't fair. And I want you all to tell the truth. Didn't that pop into your head? That ain't fair. That, that ain't fair. That, who, that's not just. Well, you better stop the train because 
you got to be super careful if you allow yourself to start thinking that because when you start thinking that, what you're doing is you're proving that deep down inside of you somewhere that you believe that God owes you something. God don't owe us squat. You're proving that somewhere inside you believe that God owes you salvation, that it is some like some entitlement program that everybody is entitled to this, that everybody, because what happens is that train of thought leads to everybody goes to heaven. Just be good enough, you'll go to heaven. Everybody goes to heaven. Well, they don't. They don't. That should make us weep. It should truly make us weep, but they don't. But that end is the natural end for that train of thought when the reality is this. Not one single person in history was or is or ever will be entitled to salvation. And if you want to talk about what God ought to do, what we've actually earned is he ought to thump us all off the planet. If he was acting only on, um, on the basis of his justice, then every one of us in this room and everybody that is watching or listening would go to hell for eternity. Y'all, this tough stuff. Why is that? And I would say it's because of this. Because in love, in amazing love, in godly love, he created us to enjoy him. He created us to, to know him, to be in relationship with him, to worship him, to walk with him. And every single one of us in this room, in some form or fashion, has rebelled against him. All of us have turned away from him to our own ways. Typically, we turn away from him and we turn towards ourselves. We turn towards the man in the mirror. We think we know better. We think we know. We justify stuff because we say and we think that we know better. But we have sinned against an eternally holy God and we deserve eternal death. Doesn't that sound pleasant? Aren't you glad you got up on this Thanksgiving weekend and, and came to church on the trail? It's tough stuff. Remember, though, man, there is a big, huge, ginormous light at the end of this tunnel. In this moment, though, the truth is that's the only thing that we're entitled to. And should he choose to do that, he would not compromise his justice. In any way, he wouldn't compromise his love, his goodness, his power, his authority. He wouldn't compromise any of that in any way. It is only the sheer mercy of your heavenly Father that he is gracious enough to save some. If you look at Israel in the desert, God did not have mercy and compassion on Israel, not, not because they willed to receive his mercy, he didn't have mercy and compassion on them because they ran after him with good deeds or with energy or with efforts. He didn't have compassion on them because they deserved it. He didn't have compassion and mercy on them because they had good intentions and they just got carried away a little bit. They were down there, uh, the two or three million of them down there at the foot of the mountain and they had really good intentions and somehow all their jewelry flung into a bucket and they melted it and somehow this golden calf just appeared. It's not like they had good intentions and they just got carried away. You know, that's, he, didn't, he didn't show mercy on them for that reason. No, 
They received the forgiveness and the mercy of God because God willed to be merciful to them. Run down a little rabbit trail for a second. Good intentions. Good intentions are like a funny thing. Like, God knows my intentions. He knows my intentions were noble. He knows my heart. And he knows my intentions were good. I got to at least get some credit for that, right? No, you don't. No. And people tend to, I've thought that so many times in, in the course of my life. People seem to think that good intentions are some key that unlocks the door to eternal life. But by the time you finally get to try the lock, you're going to find out that that key doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. Other people imagine that, that their efforts are like building some, some ladder to heaven, some ladder to heaven that all the steps and the rungs are built out of your desire or your intention or your efforts or your works or your reputation or your heritage. Oh, my heritage is a big rung in that ladder. But the reality is none of those steps will support even a feather. People are so busy trying to do stuff to reach God that they miss. I've done it, y'all. That, that they miss for years and years that he's been reaching down to them and they just missed it. Can you, can you understand that? Can you think in your own life, all, if it's particularly when you look back at your life, and you see all these little God moments that you just missed. You just missed probably because you were looking at yourself. Put me in the front of the line. I did it so many times. And it's because Stephen said it. Keep your eyes on Jesus. If you're looking at yourself, your eyes ain't on Jesus. I've done it so many times. Y'all, we cannot ever in any form or fashion ever, ever, ever earn God's mercy. It wouldn't be mercy if we earned it, right? By very definition. Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This hard heart issue, very difficult in scripture. And I believe that a hard heart doesn't just pop up on the scene out of nowhere. I think it creeps up on people over probably years and years. It almost sneaks up on you because you don't even see it happening. When you're in the middle of it, you don't even see it happening. And I think there's, I don't know, three or four or five stages that people go through and they come out the other end with a, with a permanently, seemingly permanently hardened heart. It always begins with this. You abandon the guidance. You abandon the voice of God as he speaks through scripture or you abandon the voice of God, the wisdom, the counsel of godly people that you're in relationship with. It always begins there. Usually it is avoiding the scripture and it sounds like this. I know I ought to be reading. I just don't have time. I, and every time I pick it up, I don't understand a word that it says. And so therefore you set it down, you never read it again. Or if you're talking about friends, godly friends that you're in relationship with, it sounds like this. Who do they think they are? Who do they think they are trying to tell me what to do? Who they always judging me. Don't be judging me. That's what it sounds like. It's, and you sound like you think you sound cool, but what you're doing is you are in stage one of a hard heart. And that's where it begins. 
And then it kind of morphs or moves from that to being willfully disobedient, willfully disobeying God. And usually that is based on, on a desire for sin, some kind of sin. Could be a huge one, could be a little, I don't know, some desire for sin. Or it may be some, uh, some unresolved conflict you got with God, something that you and God got going on and you mad, you're mad at him. You're mad at him. And when it's this desire for sin, it is, it'll sound like, well, I know it's wrong, but it makes me feel good. And it ain't hurting nobody. You know, it's, it's not hurting anybody, so I, I'm good. Or, or, or if you've got this, this tension between you and God, it, it, it sounds like this. Well, where was he when I needed him? Where, where was he? He just abandoned me. In the middle of me needing him, he just walked out the door, hit the road. That's what it sounds like. Because your prayers were not answered the way that you thought they should have been. That's what happens. You can go from that into justifying sin as not really being sin, as being kind of in some twisted way essential for your own, I don't know, welfare or happiness. And it's going to sound something like this. Well, I'm really not positive that it's really wrong. That little voice in your head, which is the voice of the devil, and he said it back in the garden, did God really say? Every sin begins with that. And so you're like, I'm not really positive it's even wrong, and I'm not as bad as so-and-so next door, and it'll make me feel better. God wants me happy, doesn't he? He wants me happy, and this makes me happy, and it's not hurting anybody. And then you go from that to rejecting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And it sounds like, I, you know, I know I feel a little guilty, but I just don't care anymore. You know, I'm just, you know what, I'm just not even going to think about it anymore. And so you just kind of ignore, you really are beginning to really ignore the voice of the Lord. And finally, this last thing, you find yourself fully entrenched in sin, some kind of sin. And you think, I, well, I'm, too, I'm in too deep now to get out and and I might as well finish what I started. And you don't even realize how you got there. But it started with abandoning the voice of God, and it ends with an absolutely hard heart. Let me tell you about the tragedy of a hard heart. God gave Pharaoh, back Exodus 32 and 3, God gave Pharaoh a bunch of opportunities to pay attention to the warnings that, that he gave through Moses to Pharaoh. A bunch of opportunities. And finally, it seems like God finally just says, I, right, Pharaoh, just have it your way. You want to just have it your way. And Pharaoh's heart became permanently hardened. Did God, if you've read this story, if you've heard the story, you, I guarantee you ask yourself this question. Did God intentionally harden Pharaoh's heart and overrule Pharaoh's free will? Did Pharaoh become a robot that got, or a puppet and God was the puppeteer? Did, I don't believe that's what Scripture says. I don't. I think he simply confirmed that Pharaoh freely chose a life of resisting God. Pharaoh freely chose a life of resisting God. Have you ever had a season in your life where you freely chose to resist him? I, I have. I would imagine that all of us have. 
for me and you, if that season becomes a lifetime of resisting him, I can almost promise you that you will find that it will ultimately seem impossible to turn to him. Don't wait, y'all. Don't wait for just the right time before turning to him and surrendering to him because you just might not see it when it comes. You just might not hear that voice when that voice shows up. The right time is today, right now. The right time was probably last week, but we're talking right now, so I'm saying the right time is right now because if you or I continually ignore his voice over and over and over and over, it will absolutely become harder and harder and harder and harder to hear it at all. That's a guarantee. So Paul here uses Pharaoh and Moses to show that God is just in showing judgment to one Pharaoh and mercy to another Moses. If judgment falls on us, God is just. If mercy falls on us, God is just. Either way, God is just. Because why? Because none of us deserve mercy anyway. Last point today is this, and this is going to sound tough too, but you better not defy God's authority. Don't defy his authority. Remember, you got this courtroom setting here in Romans. Really, the whole letter is like a courtroom. And Paul brings in another attorney, an objector, we'll call him brings this objector onto the scene and in verse 19 Paul says you will say to me then and Paul is saying you Mr. Objector person will say to me because of what I just said why does he still find fault for who can resist his will and this objector is blaming God for the sinfulness of man in other words if God is going to have mercy on some and harden some he's going to have mercy on some He's going to harden others. If God's going to do whatever God is going to do, how can he blame me? That's a natural way to think, right? If he's going to do what he's going to do, don't blame me. How many times have you heard people say, well, God wired me up this way, right? So why blame me? Paul immediately answers that objection in verse 20. He says, who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one uh, for dishonorable use? And so in context, Paul's looking back to Isaiah. This is an allusion back to chapters 25, uh, excuse me, 29 and 45 of Isaiah. And, the, and it's this potter clay thing, and it's God responding to Israel who had been rebellious. Guys, here's what we cannot forget. And here's what we do forget, but we can't. Don't ever forget that God is the creator and we are the created. The Bible says that we're like clay and that he's the potter. He has the freedom and he has the authority and he has the power over us to do whatever it is that he does. He has the power and the authority and the wisdom and the love to do whatever he knows is best for us. What he knows is best for us. He's infinitely wise, he's infinitely good, he's infinitely loving. He knows. He's the owner and we're the owned. We are all in his hands to be used in the way that he has designed for us to be used. In his wisdom, not ours, 
And so in super simple terms, what I'm saying is that he is God and we are not. And we are so quick, like we're so quick to, to, to miss or to lose or to forget the whole creator-creation um, distinction. We're so quick to do it. I believe that it is, and I believe the entirety of Scripture would tell us that it is a pride issue, that we want to be the boss and that we want to make the rules and that we want to be in control. Here's a true story. Muhammad Ali got on an airplane one time. True story. Y'all do know who Muhammad Ali is. Probably the greatest boxer in history. Matter of fact, he called, what did he call himself? I am the greatest. So he gets on a plane, and he's sitting in first class, and a flight attendant, flight attendant comes up, asks him to buckle his seatbelt as they're preparing the plane for takeoff, and the flight attendant came back, and Ali had not buckled up, and she says to him, I'm sorry, Mr. Ali, but you're going to have to buckle that seatbelt. And she walked away, and she comes back, and he still hadn't buckled his seatbelt. And she says to him, Mr. Ali, we, we can't move. Now they're ready to taxi down the runway. She says, Mr. Ali, we can't move until you buckle your seatbelt. And he looks her right in the eyes, and he says to her, I don't need to buckle my seatbelt. She says, what do you mean? What do you mean you don't need to buckle your seatbelt? Everybody has got to buckle their seatbelt. And he says, well, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And now she's ticked, and she looks him right in the eyes, and she said, Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> and so, y'all, Superman in your own mind. You're the autonomous man. You're the man who believes, and you know when I say man, I mean men and women. We're equally prideful. You're the guy in control. You, you've, you've made yourself into the potter. The, the guy that is the boss. Ultimately, it's that guy that is in for a, a, a horrifically rude awakening. And it is unreal how we are so quick to sit in judgment on God. So quick to do it. So quick to tell him how he ought to do his job, right? I mean, imagine that. Y'all, we don't have a right to judge his ways. We don't have a, a right to... To, to judge how he does, why, to question why he does what he does. He has a right to do what he wants. What he wants, don't jump in somehow into his shoes. Don't jump into trying to play his part in the grand scheme of things. Don't think or believe that you know how he should act and don't act like you ain't never done that. That you said, well, if I was God, I would fill in the blank, right? Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't say my way. Don't think my ways are better than his ways. That is the very essence of sin. You are, you are setting yourself up to be God. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, what if he has done that, he's endured with much patience, Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What if he's done that, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So what if, hang with me, just consider 
that in his infinite wisdom and his unbelievable forbearance, his unbelievable over-the-top patience, what if, with that, that what if he puts up with, better said, what if he tolerates evil, rebellious, sinful, prideful, self-serving, self-seeking, self-centered men and women? What if he does all that for a reason? Well, maybe he's got a reason that I just don't know. Maybe he's got a reason that I just don't understand. Maybe he does. The truth, in fact, who do I think I am to, to think somehow that he needs to run his blueprint by my desk for my approval so I can put my stamp on it that says, all right, God, I'm okay with your plan. Proceed on. Who am I to think that? But that's what we do. He doesn't need to do that. What if all of that in verse 22, what if it's all to make known the riches of his glory? What if it's all to make known the riches of his glory for those who will believe? Consider that maybe he puts up with all of our junk and has put up with all of our junk for two or 3,000 years, for thousands of years, let's say that. What if he did that to display his glory and draw us to him? What if he did that to draw us to him? I believe that is the whole point of this passage. To put on display, please hear this, to put on display for all of history to see the riches of his glory in the mercy that he provides. I think that's the whole point. And that bet to put on display the riches of his glory for the whole all of history to see, the riches of his glory in the mercy that he provides. And it begs the question, at what length will a sovereign God go to to make his glory known? We may assume that he would show his anger before his mercy. So when some trial, some unexpected trial shows up, and it will if it hadn't, we're in our country, our world is in the middle of one right now. When the diagnosis comes, when uh, something happens to one of your children or something happens to mom and dad, whatever the trial is, you lose a job, wh whatever it is, when that comes, we have a real tendency to think that God is punishing us or somebody else for something. And we can quickly find it difficult to believe that he would... Think about it. You've probably thought this, and you definitely have heard people say it. A loving God would not allow me to go through this. A loving, how can, how can a loving God allow that to happen to my best friend's daughter? We find it super difficult that God would allow us to experience some kind of pain in our life that he would do that so that we might grow in people around us in our understanding of his mercy. That was certainly the problem for the, for, for the disciples in John chapter 9. If you remember John chapter 9, write it down in the margin somewhere. Go back and read John 9. They came upon this dude, they being the disciples in Jesus. They come upon this dude who has been blind since birth, blind since birth, and Jesus spit on the ground and he made a little a little mud paste, and he rubbed it on the guy's eyes. Blind since birth. 
spit on the ground, mud paste on his eyes. He tells the guy, go wash it off in a certain pool. The guy goes and washes it off in that pool. And the guy who had been blind since birth, now, when he washed it off, now he could see. That's when you, whenever you hear anybody say, I was blind and now I can see, it's coming from John chapter 9. Let me read you the first three verses of that chapter. As he went along, he, Jesus, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Who sinned? This dude's blind. Surely somebody sinned. Who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. They assumed that the blind man was suffering the consequences of some sin from him or somebody in his family. Jesus surprises them with a true explanation, with the truth that neither it was neither him nor his parents that sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him, so that glory could be revealed in him, so that mercy could be revealed in those circumstances, so that forgiveness and grace could be displayed in the circumstances of that guy, that his mercy could be on display for the world to see, for all of history to see. Look, it's 2,000 years later. We're reading about that, talking about it right now. And it's a display of the mercy of your heavenly Father. Jesus used a healing touch to demonstrate the mercy of his Father. When you're experiencing difficulties, whatever it may be, whatever it is, whatever trial, remember that your response to whatever problem is going on and God's work in your life will bring glory to him, can bring glory to him. His sovereignty, his glory, God's love, God's goodness, God's authority, God's power, his mercy, his justice, our pain, our difficulties, our circumstances, all the issues that this passage is dealing with, I believe they all crash together at the foot of the cross. This blueprint, this plan, it is about Jesus. It is about that cross. The greatest display of justice and mercy in the history of the world happened on that cross. The greatest display of justice and mercy in the history of the world happened on that cross. The Bible says his sheep will hear his voice. Who are his sheep? Believers are his sheep. Romans chapter 9 verse 23 says the riches of his glory will be seen and understood and embraced by the vessels of mercy. Who are the vessels of mercy? Believers, believers, on that cross, justice was absolutely served because the sin that had to be paid for was paid for on that cross. You just didn't have to pay for it. Don't, don't go down some road and act like the sin didn't have to be paid for, nor that it was paid for. It was paid for. That's justice that happened on that cross. Mercy was demonstrated because me and you didn't have to do it. We were spared that. And the glory of God and his plan, his glory and his plan for salvation and victory was revealed for me and you and all of history to see when Jesus walks out of that tomb alive. What should our response to that be? I can tell you what my response is on a daily basis. I cannot believe it. 
on a daily basis, I just stand in awe at the grace and the mercy and the justice of the Lord. Like we should just be in awe that he chooses anybody to be saved. So nobody can, can demand that God explain to them why he does what he does. He's the one that makes all the rules. And, and you know what? When you pick up a Bible and you read it and you study it and you pray and you speak with other believers and you listen to God's voice through people and through the word, what you'll come away with is that he loves to show mercy to us, that he desires to show mercy to us, that he wants to lead you to his son. What an amazing God he is. Trust if you never have, even if you have, trust in that mercy today. Romans 10, 13 says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And when you call upon the name of the Lord, what are you calling upon? You're calling upon his mercy. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And that truth is, that's whether I'm saved or not. I'm not I don't stop being a sinner when I'm saved. I'm going to cry out to him every day. Lord, be merciful to me. A sinner. If you've never trusted in that mercy, if you've never said yes to that offer, that offer is there. And I beg you, consider trusting in that today. Here's what that sounds like. If you can turn the lights down a little bit. Y'all close your eyes. Here's what it sounds like. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, I repent of that sin. I'm going to turn away from it. And I'm going to turn towards you. And Lord, I believe with everything inside of me that you died on that cross to take care of my debt. Take care of my debt. I believe that you are who you say you are. Lord, I believe that you can do every single thing that you say you can do, and I stand in awe of your presence. Lord, save me. In Jesus' name, amen. Look, y'all, if you said that today, I don't care whether you said it out loud or you said it in your mind, if you're watching online, if you're sitting here. If you said that today... You were blind this morning when you woke up. And you may not even have known you were blind. But you're going to go to bed tonight with the ability to see. Somebody say amen. amen. I was blind and now I can see. What, what greater thing is there than that? Let me pray one more time. I'm going to turn it back over to our worship team. Lord, we do stand in all of your presence. Lord, your Holy Spirit was all up in this room today. Lord, we pray that we would listen to you, that we would not listen to ourselves. Lord, that we would not place our trust in the man in the mirror, but that we, that we would, as Stephen said just a little while ago, that we would fix our eyes upon you, that we would live the rest of our lives without taking our eyes off of you. Lord, that is our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen.